Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, the Prime Minister says it's unclear when the pandemic will peak or how long it will be before we can get back to day-to-day life. It is very obvious that we need to be very, very careful that all the work we've done uh, over these past weeks and in the coming weeks at staying home, at uh, following the instructions of our public health officials, doesn't become for naught uh, when suddenly uh, spikes happen as we get back to work. The opposition says they're ready to work with the Liberals on a new wage subsidy bill. We're waiting for Bill Borno and Justin Trudeau. They keep delaying. We've been waiting for them for three weeks. I remember they, they goofed up. They wrote uh, their bill improperly last time. And for three weeks, we've been ra- waiting for them to rewrite it so that we could get back to Parliament. So uh, we're ready to go in uh, this afternoon and, and, uh, and uh, discuss these matters, but uh, we're, we're not hearing back from the government. And where does the government see Canada's economy going once we emerge from the pandemic? And we are starting to think about how we, we build ourselves back to an economy that's uh, seeing uh, strength, that's going to support uh, employment. Um, but right now, we're not at a, a stage where we're talking about the policies that we might be doing in order to ensure that that happens. We're very much focused on how we protect people getting through this crisis. It's Thursday, April the 9th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by National Post columnist John Iveson. Good morning, John. Morning, Mark. The Prime Minister, of course, is being asked questions as he does his daily news briefings about when we're going to emerge from all of the restrictions that we're operating under now. And, of course, it's impossible to answer those questions. Nobody knows how this is going to unfold. But he did shed a little bit of light on it uh, yesterday when he said that it was looking like months rather than weeks and that uh, it, it when we do emerge from this, it will be in stages. We're not just going to flip a switch and say everybody goes back to work. I know that's not a surprise, but I think it's the first time the government has been acknowledging uh, at least that much information. Right. I don't think it will be a surprise. We're seeing that in other countries. I think the Germans have just relaxed some of their restrictions in the last week or so. <clears throat> Clearly, they're ahead of us in the in the curve and having flattened the curve. Uh, it's not a surprise either, given the the, the, the government's public utterances on when uh, bureaucrats, for example, are likely to get back in the office. The, the working assumption in the public service is that it will be late June, early July before things return to somewhat normal in that sphere. So I think that um, you know the, the prime minister is being necessarily cautious. The public health officer in Quebec. Yesterday, talked about any projections beyond the end of April being astrology, and I think that that's that's about right. I mean, nobody can pre- this, there are no crystal balls in this. We're, we're going to get the government's modelling, federal government's modelling on uh, future uh, hospitalisations and deaths uh, today. And again, I think that uh, there should be a note of caution about any figures beyond the end of April. It's a little bit like weather forecasting, isn't it? Uh, you can you can probably right. rely on the numbers for the next few days, but uh, after that, the variables increase and the level of uncertainty increases, and you're making assumptions based on assumptions based on assumptions, and and uh, it's very difficult to predict beyond the immediate future. Right. I mean, I think at the moment, Ontario, Quebec, and I think Saskatchewan and Alberta have released uh, modeling uh, projections, uh, British Columbia too, and they projected best scenario death case for Saskatchewan and Ontario is the same, I gather. 
you know, given that Ontario's population is 12 times higher, that does not inspire confidence, to be honest. All right, let's talk about the efforts to pass the wage subsidy bill. Uh, and th- this is the government has made some revisions to this uh, to uh, uh, respond to concerns expressed by the business community. And we could talk about that in a moment. But the bill itself, the legislation is being held up as the Conservatives and Liberals debate over exactly how to recall the House of Commons to pass it. Uh, so uh, tell us a little bit about what's going on there. Uh, what is it that the opposition is concerned about? Well, on this occasion, it doesn't seem that they are concerned about the substance of the bill. Uh, if uh, if listeners remember, the last bill that came through uh, caused great consternation because it was deemed to the government was deemed to have overreached in the powers that it was seeking uh, when it came to extending loans, uh, taxation, and so on. They wanted uh, powers to extend into 2021. There's none of that in here, so that's not really the issue. What seems to be the issue is that the Conservatives want the want the the House to return physically, and the Liberals want to set up some kind of virtual Parliament, which would obviously operate remotely. You know, the the, the Conservative House Leader Candice Bergen was saying, "Well, ministers hold press conferences every day. Uh, there is room in the House of Commons to socially distance if you if you have uh, you know a, a limited number of MPs in the House." Uh, the Liberals are saying that meeting in person would send the wrong message about social distancing. It would risk exposing people to COVID. And there's no reason that we can't do this uh, virtually, although apparently the technology is still being worked on. So it, it seems a little bit of a, a, a meaningless argument, to be honest. I mean, I think in the grand scheme of things, most Canadians don't care whether Parliament meets in person or, or virtually just meet get the legislation passed. I think the, the Conservatives were emboldened by the, the, the last opposition, to the, the opposition to the last bill. They're flexing their muscles, opposing it, almost for the sake of opposing it, but when push comes to shove, they will obviously uh, wave through the legislation. We're expecting to hear the latest numbers uh, on jobs today, and the picture could be quite bleak. We know that uh, hundreds of thousands of people have been applying for employment insurance over the last few weeks, so this could be one of the highest unemployment rates we've seen in a long time. What do you expect in terms of the numbers, and do you think the wage subsidy bill is enough to satisfy some of the concerns that... Uh, business people have been raising about the original proposal from the government that it that it uh, the, the conditions were too stringent. Well, on the unemployment rate, I mean, it was five point six percent in February. We we know it's going to be much much higher than that. Um, the thing about today's numbers, of course, is that they're for March, and we're already seeing we're already getting from the government numbers into April. So it's not going to be the full story. Uh, we're looking very much in the rearview mirror. As of Monday, I was talking to the people who, who run the, un, the employment insurance program. They've had 2.7 million claims by uh, by Monday night. Uh, Monday Monday was the first day of the new SERB, the, the emergency response benefit, and there were somewhere around close to a million claims for that. So, that, so you're up to 3.5 million claims by the end of Monday. There were more yesterday. You know, we're getting to a stage where the the unemployment rate is eventually going to be over 20% of the working population, of the labour force. And it has not been 
at, at that rate in modern Canadian history. And you've got to go back to the Great Depression to find rates that are any close to what we can expect once it's all done. Now, we're not going to see that necessarily in today's numbers, but uh, but it it does give an indication of the the historic nature of the days that we're, that we're in. As far as the business subsidy, I think, you know, the government started out saying it would subsidise wages to the, to the tune of 10%. We're now looking at 75% per worker, and the government has revised the, the timetable. It was, first of all, you had to see revenue, uh, revenue drop 30%. They've now revised that to a 15% drop. And they've become more flexible over the starting point of that. Uh, and the other thing is that they're going to get the money out uh, somehow. They're going to get it out within three weeks as opposed to six weeks, which was a real concern for a lot of businesses, that you were going to have to keep workers employed without any kind of government subsidy for six weeks. For many businesses, they, a much better alternative was to, to lay the worker off and, and have them on uh, employment insurance. The cumulative effect of, of that, though, I think, is that the, the government has been, you know, has been somewhat hesitant and, and cautious about its response, which I suppose is, is understandable given the number of people we're talking about. But it's eventually got to the right place, and I think now we're starting to see the thing work as they envisaged it. You know, Air Canada, for example, re-employing 16,000 people that it laid off because it's going to get subsidised wages. With any luck, we'll see that trend continue, whereby uh, the, the employment insurance rates stop growing because people are being re-employed by their employer, yeah. who's now getting 75% of their wages back. What about the oil and gas sector? Uh, there has been a lot of talk over the last few days about what help will be there from the government for that industry. Uh, the, the leaders of that industry and, and politicians in Alberta, of course, have been calling for it. Um, but there seems to be some hesitation on the part of the government. Yeah, this is not quite clear what's going on. I mean, two weeks ago, Finance Minister Morneau said that aid to the energy industry is coming in a matter of hours, if not days, and that hasn't happened. So that's led to a lot of speculation about what is actually going on. Now, it seems that the federal government is working with the Alberta government to come up with some kind of deep package. It's not as if they have completely abandoned the idea. But I do think that there's a little bit of horse trading going on in Cabinet whereby the the ministers who are in favour of a transition to green jobs feel that this is a perfect opportunity to basically cut the cut the, the oil industry loose or at least subsidise the green jobs and not what they would consider the dirty jobs. Now, that was, uh, that's being speculated on that the environment minister, Jonathan Wilkinson, and presumably other cabinet ministers like Catherine McKenna and uh, Stephen Guibault, the, the heritage minister, actively using this opportunity, this crisis as an opportunity to, well, they would use the word transition, others might use the word phase out the, the oil industry in this country. So it will be interesting to see what happens, the, whether there will be some kind of package, which and, and the shape of that package is, is uh, up for negotiation. I mean, there have been, the, the, the Alberta government was looking for changes to the Federal Stabilisation Fund, which is would essentially just give it a lump of cash. Uh, there are other suggestions that the government could fund the cleanup of orphan wells so that you're you're uh, you're actually helping the environment. You're re-employing uh, energy workers to actually clean up wells that are no longer in use. A bigger, broader issue is also going to be looked at today by OPEC, which is 
discussing uh, ministers are going to discuss the uh, the price war between Russia and Saudi Arabia and see if it can come to an end by some kind of supply limiting deal. All of these things would help Alberta. It, things do seem to be about to change, but for the moment they're being hit by a double, if not a triple whammy, with uh, COVID, a lack of investment, and then this crazy price war. Yeah. All right. We'll see what today brings. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, Mark. Thanks a lot. That's John Iveson of the National Post. We are starting to think about how we we build ourselves back to an economy that's uh, seeing uh, strength, that's going to support employment. Um, But right now, we're not at a a stage where we're talking about the policies that we might be doing in order to ensure that that happens. We're very much focused on how we protect people getting through this crisis. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. At National Newswatch, Glenn Pearson considers how we move ahead after the coronavirus. Pearson writes, There will be massive pressure on governments and regulatory agencies to plow funds back into the financial sector as opposed to the public one. We know all too well what happened when that transpired following the recession of 2008. The public cupboard was stripped bare so private markets could be stocked. Should we go down that same route, societies will go down as well. It's time to rebuild societies, but that will never be done if we simply repeat our history. In McLean's, Shannon Gormley asks, what will we sacrifice to be saved? Gormley writes, thousands more people will die unless governments temporarily expand much of their power and restrict many of our rights. As long as governments, with our support, do enough of that which is required of them, it will stop. Experience suggests that if we do enough, we can cautiously hope and trust that this is going to stop. But if governments do more than enough, what might we have started? In the Toronto Star, Bob Hepburn argues Andrew Scheer and Peter McKay are failing the crisis leadership test. Hepburn writes, Their performances during this crisis raise questions about whether the Conservatives will be seen as a serious alternative to the Liberals in the next federal election. For the Conservative Party itself, the fact it took weeks after the outbreak erupted to suspend the leadership race showed the party bureaucrats as inflexible and uncaring. Combined, the actions by Scheer, McKay, and the party hierarchy signal a party leadership tone-deaf to the real concerns of ordinary Canadians. It may well haunt the Conservatives for years to come. In the Globe and Mail, Dennis Matthews argues the coronavirus has created a high-stakes moment for companies and their reputations. Matthews writes, Reputations take years to build, but only a minute to destroy. And that's especially true now. One global study last week found that 65% of consumers say a brand's response to the pandemic will have a huge impact on their likelihood to buy their products. Consumers will be making new choices about how they travel, shop, work, and conduct their daily lives. And there will be long memories for how companies behaved and treated people during this crisis. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The Prime Minister will host a call with provincial and territorial premiers, followed by his daily update on the coronavirus situation. And Conservative leader Andrew Scheer will hold a news conference in Regina to discuss the government's response to the coronavirus and the proposed wage subsidy legislation. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Thursday, April the 9th. Tune in to CPAC and CPAC.ca throughout the day and weekend for coverage of the coronavirus crisis and for Primetime Politics Weekend. Our podcast returns Monday morning. Have a great weekend.